Good morning. I had one question for Brent. Uh, do guest speakers qualify for that $5 gift certificate at Starbucks? They get two. They get two. Don't tell my wife. I hope everyone got a chance to grab an outline uh, as you came in. If you didn't, maybe the ushers can make sure that uh, they're passed out. One more prop to keep you awake. Uh, throughout the, the next few minutes, I had Renee put extra caffeine in all the uh, coffee cups, so hopefully it'll work. On April 5th, 1943, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a Lutheran pastor, was arrested and imprisoned by the German Gestapo for his political activities against the Nazi regime. He had been part of an underground resistance movement and his words and activities finally caught up with him. Two years after he was arrested, he was facing execution. The day before the sentence was carried out, it was a Sunday, he held a brief church service in this little home that they were being kept, which housed various nationalities. One particular prisoner, an English army officer who was also facing the death sentence, but was later set free, he wrote these words describing the last day of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life. Quote, Bonhoeffer always seemed to spread an atmosphere of happiness and joy over the least incident, a profound gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few persons I've ever met for whom God was real and always near. On Sunday, April 8, 1945, Pastor Bonhoeffer conducted a little service of worship and spoke to us in a way that went to the heart of all of us. He found just the right words to express the spirit of our imprisonment. He had hardly ended his last prayer when the door opened and two civilians entered. They said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. That had only one meaning for all the prisoners, the gallows. We said our goodbyes. He took me aside and said, This is the end. But for me, it's the beginning of life. The next day, Bonhoeffer was hanged in Flossenburg, just a few days before the Allied troops had made their way into that prison camp. This is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. What was it that so captivated Bonhoeffer that at the very moment of his execution, he not only could think such words, but could express them to a friend? What was the nature of his hope that not even hanging by his neck from the gallows could extinguish it. It's obvious. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's hope was a living hope placed in his heart by a living Savior, the Lord Jesus. That living hope is the underlying theme for the book that you are studying, First Peter. Peter wrote to thousands upon thousands of believers who had been exiled throughout the Roman Empire. And these believers were suffering terrible persecution uh, at this time of his writing. I want to invite you to turn on your Bibles or open your Bibles, whatever it may be, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 to 12 uh, as we continue this study in 1 Peter. But before we do, why don't we bow for a word of prayer and pray together. Father, we thank you for the encouragement we received from your word. Thank you for the time of worship. And we were able to sing about the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus and that living hope uh, that has been placed in all of our lives. And I pray, Father, as we 
contemplate your word and think about how it affects each and every one of us in our lives. I pray that uh, your spirit would be at work and that we would leave here different than how we came. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen. If it's okay, can we stand while we read God's word together? Beginning there in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that you have now been told by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Amen. Please be seated. Let me say just a, a couple things by way of quick review. First Peter was written just prior to 64 AD, the year in which widespread state-sponsored persecution broke out all over the Roman Empire. In the summer of that year, Nero, uh, the emperor, had burned Rome, and he diverted attention from himself by uh, blaming the Christians. Tragically, Christians quickly and uh, conveniently became objects of utter reproach, and they were arrested and imprisoned. After being tried and convicted as enemies of the state, haters of mankind, they were fed to the lions, burned at the stake. They were thrown into the Colosseum and torn apart by wild animals. Many were set afire by being fastened to the top of poles so that they could light up the night sky, serving as human torches. These were very difficult days for those who had chosen to follow Christ. And the Apostle Peter was seeking to encourage his suffering brothers and sisters, and he wasted little ink in doing so. And you saw last week, Pastor Craig talked about two very important truths that were meant to comfort these persecuted believers, meant to encourage them. The first truth had to do with the Christian's true relationship with this world. Uh, you and I are exiles. We're sojourners, you know, aliens. Uh, we're on a pilgrimage from God. Our true citizenship, our true home isn't here. Our true citizenship is in heaven. This world and all of its evil will one day come to a screeching halt, and the judge of all the earth is going to execute righteous judgment. We know that day is coming. But for now, we're just passing through, and we're en route to a city whose builder and architect is God. Peter mentioned not only our true relationship to this world, but he also talked about our special relationship that we have with God. We may be aliens to the world, but to God, we're his elect. We're his chosen ones. 
So it really doesn't matter what the world thinks of us because the only thing that matters, there's only one opinion that counts, and it's God's. We're not to seek our identity. We're not to seek our significance. We're not to seek our value in this world. You know, it should come through our, our status, our power, our fame, or our money. Our significance, our value comes from the fact that we have this special relationship with God. We're his chosen people. Now, verses 3 to 12, our text for this morning, Peter elaborates on this special relationship that we have with God. He talks about this marvelous, glorious, uh, miraculous salvation that we've come to experience because of our encounter with the gospel. This morning, I want to highlight three things that can be noted about this marvelous salvation. Three things that we can expect to flow out of this salvation experience that we've had in our encounter with Christ. The first is found in verse 3. Peter said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. You want to underline those two words. You know, in other words, we put our faith in Christ. We are born again. Some translations put it. Now, I have to confess, early in my years of ministry, I would shy away from using that phrase, born again. And it's primarily because it was used pejoratively by the secular media to talk about religious extremists. And, you know, who wants to be an extremist? But I soon came to appreciate that little phrase and how it's a beautiful description of what takes place spiritually when the imperishable seed of the gospel lands in good soil. And germinates. Born again simply means getting a fresh start. That's all it means. And that's the first thing that practically flows out of our salvation experience. You and I, we are blessed with a fresh start in life. Let me ask you, have you ever been halfway through a home repair project, halfway through a business venture, halfway through painting a room or painting a picture and you've stepped back and thought to yourself, I wish I could start all over again. Ever been halfway through a life and thought to yourself, I wish I could start all over again? Well, I have good news for you. God gives to sinners that very option. It's called being born again. It's a fresh start. It's not just turning over a new leaf. Uh, If I could use a golfing term, it's a mulligan, a do-over. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God blesses us with a brand new beginning. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. The fullest discussion of our new birth is found in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 3, you read about Nicodemus. He was a very devout very well-respected religious leader uh, amongst the Jews. And he came to visit Jesus one night under the cover of darkness. Nicodemus obviously was intrigued by the miracles that Jesus was performing and by the things that Jesus taught. So he comes to Jesus. I'm sure they exchanged a few pleasantries, but it seems like at the very onset of his conversation, Jesus just looks him straight away and says to Nicodemus these words. He says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water, born of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So there are two aspects of this new birth mentioned here in John chapter 3 by Jesus, being born of the water and born of the Spirit. 
What exactly do those two descriptions refer to? Well, some have read baptism into that phrase, born of water, but I highly doubt Jesus had that in mind. I don't think so. Much more probable is Jesus is referring to the depiction of new birth that's found in the Old Testament. In fact, it's found in the book of Ezekiel, which would explain why Jesus was a bit puzzled that Nicodemus had no idea what he was talking about. I mean, Nicodemus was a teacher of the scriptures. Certainly he'd read this passage before. The prophet Ezekiel spoke and wrote of a future day when God was going to infuse new life into his people. Ezekiel chapter 36. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. That's the first aspect there. The first description where we are cleansed of our sin, we're born of water. And he goes on, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from, your, uh, from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. There's the second aspect of our new birth. You know, born of the spirit. It refers to that spiritual awakening that takes place once the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit takes up residency in our life. Well, what's the basis of this new birth? Again, go back to verse 3. God's boundless mercy. We must never, ever lose sight of the fact that our salvation, this special relationship that we enjoy with God, is solely based on God's mercy and grace, not our performance. We did nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. Uh, You realize that good people don't get to go to heaven. Only perfect people get to go to heaven. And you and I on our own, we could never be perfect enough. And were it not for the mercy and grace of God, where God forgives us of our sin and he clothes us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we would still be helplessly lost, separated from God. There's a second thing that practically flows out of our salvation experience. It's found in verses 4 to 5. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power into the coming of your salvation that's to be revealed in the last time. Second point of your outline, our fresh start inspires a future hope. Now you know as well as I do, uh, hope as a commodity, it's in short supply in today's world, uh, and for good reason. I mean, you look across the landscape of this world and everything looks pretty hopeless. And that probably explains why today's most popular movies, most popular novels and TV shows have to do with uh, some sort of despairing, dystopian world view. It's reflecting how people feel. I read a couple of months ago that uh, I was thinking that this would be on the decline, but depression, suicide, and drug abuse, unfortunately, is on the rise. Uh, it's hard to believe, but it's, it's getting more prevalent in our culture. Many in our larger cities are plagued uh, by gangs and violent crime, and some cities are struggling with homelessness. I mean, in the 21st century and all the conveniences that are at our disposal and all the money that's at our disposal, people are living out in the streets. Acts of domestic and international terrorism uh, seem to make their way to the headlines. You know, every couple of weeks you read about something. Despite the advent of social media, uh, which was supposed to give us this convenient platform to have close connection with our family and friends and, and provide this sort of uh, love between all of us, well, psychologists tell us that 
people are more depressed and more anxious and more lonely now than any other time in history, even though we can instantaneously connect with everyone around the world. The list goes on. To the average person on the street, things do look rather bleak. But I would argue not so for the Christian, because you and I, we are clinging to a future hope. You and I are looking at a hope that's undeterred, a hope that is untouched by the depraved and chaotic conditions that that surround us um, in everyday life. Regardless of what happens this week, regardless of what happens this month or this year, you and I, Peter said, are in this living hope that's guaranteed by the power of God. So what exactly is our living future hope? Well, it's defined for us in verse 4. Our future hope is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. That's it. You know, we've been adopted into the family of God. We're children of God. And like you know, all children, we have this inheritance. And our inheritance is being preserved in heaven, the Bible says. Which leads to the next question. Okay, what's that inheritance? What's waiting for us? In the Old Testament, the Israelites looked forward to a physical inheritance. They were looking forward to having uh, a chance to, to uh, access the land of Canaan, the promised land. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, the promised land, it's not a physical land. It takes on a spiritual dimension. What we will inherit as believers, I would argue, in all of its fullness, is eternal life. That's our inheritance, eternal life. Now, I know when you hear the term eternal life, you often think only of time. Uh, you think of the fact that, hey, the life is going to go on and on forever and ever. That's what comes first to mind, and certainly that's a part of it. But it doesn't give you the complete picture. No. Eternal life refers not only to a quantity of life. Eternal life refers to a quality of life as well, to the kind of life that you and I are going to experience. For all eternity, those who've been born of God are going to have the privilege of enjoying unimaginable intimacy with God forever. It's a profound and rich fellowship and communion that we're going to have with the creator of the universe. Human language cannot express the depths of this intimacy that we're going to experience when we realize our salvation in all of its fullness. Now, for you theologians out there, you realize that salvation has three aspects. Um, we talk about the fact that when you come to faith in Christ, you are justified, you are, you're declared righteous, and that certainly is the case. And then throughout your Christian uh, life, you experience sanctification. You become more like Jesus. Well, there's one final aspect of our salvation that's coming in the future. It's when we're glorified. When we see Jesus face to face, the Bible says we're going to be made like him. And we're going to be given new bodies, and we're going to experience fullness of our salvation when we're glorified. And this inheritance, this eternal life that we've entered into, Peter says, it's absolutely guaranteed. Uh, it's secure. No one can take it away. It's beyond the reach of change. It's beyond the reach of decay. It's beyond the reach of death. Well, some of you might be wondering, does that mean uh, you would argue for eternal security? Absolutely. The phrase shielded by God's power reminds me of something that Jesus said back in the Gospels. John chapter 10, Jesus said these words, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who is, 
given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It's a double guarantee. Our salvation is protected by the power of God. So flowing out of our salvation experience, uh, we've been blessed with this fresh start. Our fresh start gives uh, a future hope. It inspires a future hope. And thirdly and finally, our future hope inspires a faithful walk. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Our future hope, described there in verses 3 to 5, is meant to provide us with the necessary strength and the necessary motivation to remain true and faithful to Christ throughout our lives, regardless of what we go through. It's often said that there are two inevitabilities in life, death and taxes. Well, let me throw in a third, suffering. It's inevitable, if you're a believer. Those who've chosen to follow Christ, suffering is our appointed lot, according to a number of passages. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, for it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. To Timothy, Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So whether we are suffering for righteousness' sake, or being persecuted because we identify ourselves as Christians in this world, while we are in the midst of it, we are to fix our thoughts upon our future hope. We're to fix our thoughts on that future inheritance that's being reserved in heaven for us. We're to fix our thoughts on the fullness of our salvation that one day is going to be revealed. And by doing so, our hearts, the Bible says, will supernaturally be infused with joy, an inexpressible joy. Um, Even though we haven't seen Jesus, we haven't touched Jesus, that joy is going to flood our hearts so that we're faithful and true to him, regardless of what we experience. One of the best-known Christian martyrs in the second century was a man by the name of Polycarp. He was the bishop of Smyrna. After the Roman proconsul attempted to persuade him to revile Christ in order to be set free, um, Polycarp replied with these words, Eighty-six years I have served him, and he's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my Savior and my King? Polycarp was convicted and burned alive at the stake. He remained faithful and true to Christ because his gaze was set not on this world, not on this life, not on his present sufferings. He was awaiting that fullness of salvation in the future. I would argue that it's critical for you and me to have a biblical perspective on suffering. Uh, Not only for our own sake, but I would argue for our children's sake and perhaps even for our children's children's sake. We're going to come into a period of time, I believe, um, in the history of the world where we are going to suffer for our faith. And we need to have a biblical perspective on suffering. The first thing that I think comes out from this passage is that we recognize that suffering is only temporary. It doesn't last forever. It's only temporary. Peter said in verse 6 that we suffer for a little while. 
It may seem like it's long-term, but when you juxtapose your present suffering against eternity, it's just a smidgen of time, a blip on the map. Uh, It's going to disappear in the face of eternity. Second, we must recognize that our suffering is beneficial. It serves an important purpose. In what way? Again, verse 7, Peter talks about the fact that our, our suffering shows the genuineness of our faith. And we all would like to see that, that our faith is real, that it's genuine. Elsewhere in Scripture, James chapter 1, we don't have time to look at these, but James 1 and Romans 5, you find that it's beneficial. When you go through hard times and you go through suffering, it builds your inner character. It makes you mature. It helps you to become more like the Lord Jesus. So you see, suffering is, a, is an invaluable component to our total salvation experience. We would be remiss if we didn't look briefly at the, the closing portion of this passage, verses 10 to 12. Peter had one final thing in rounding out his discussion of this salvation, this miraculous glorious salvation that we've come to experience. The very salvation that the ancient prophets of Israel tried to figure out um, is a salvation we enjoy. They never figured it out, you realize here. The Old Testament prophets, they spoke frequently about the coming Messiah. They talked about God's final redemption, God's final judgment, but they had no idea when and under what circumstances these things were going to play out in history. And no matter how intensely they searched for this profound salvation, Uh, It didn't matter how profound their vision was. They still had but a limited glimpse of what God was doing in eternity. Peter's point here is this. The Old Testament prophets were part of the Old Covenant. They served a preliminary role in the plan of God. They were preparatory to the gospel. You and I as Christians, we're living not in the, uh, uh, the B.C. era. We're living in the A.D. era. We're part of the New Covenant Uh, We're part of this new covenant that Jesus established when he died on the cross. These three verses here in 1 Peter help to clarify something that Jesus said um, that's confused many back in the Gospels when Jesus talked about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. I mean, he was God's appointed messenger, uh, talking about the coming Messiah and getting people ready for uh, the coming king. And yet Jesus said something very peculiar at one point in the Gospels. He said, He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of the prophets, I think of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Daniel. I don't even want to be mentioned in the same sentences as these giant men of the faith. But Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the Old Testament prophets, including John the Baptist, they belong to the Old Covenant, which was preparatory to Christ. Jesus referred to John the Baptist, the greatest of Israel's prophets, as a friend of the bridegroom. That's quite a high honor. But the least saint who's a part of the new covenant, who's been adopted in God's family because of the work of Christ, what are we called? The bride of Christ. All who are part of the new covenant together make up the bride of Christ. John the Baptist was a friend of the bridegroom, you know, a friend of Christ. We're the bride. And so what I want you to see is we are the most privileged people in the history of the world. So whatever we may suffer here on earth, the reward that lies ahead is unbelievable. We can't even wrap our minds around the special relationship that God has bestowed on us as being a part of the new covenant. So fortunate are we, notice again verse 12, 
So magnificent is this privilege, so great is the honor, that even the angels, Peter said, it's like they're leaning over the banisters of heaven. They're trying to get a glimpse of uh, Christ's bride before she makes her grand appearance. Angels would have been given anything to be a part of this glorious salvation. Christians are the most privileged people in the history of the world. I close with this. What the Old Testament prophets prophesied and longed for is actually available right now. Eternity has burst into history. Or if I were to use the words of Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand. Whether you are 8 years old or 80 years old, you can experience this, this glorious salvation. You can experience new birth, a new start. You can have your sins forgiven, you can be cleansed, and you can have the, the Spirit of God take up residency in your life, and you can experience an abundant life that's going to start now, and it's going to go on for all eternity, eternal life. Most of you, I know, you've made that decision, and that's fantastic. So my question for you this morning is, how strong is your faith? How robust, how resilient is your faith? Or if I use Peter's terms, how refined is your faith? It's reasonable to suggest that the strength and maturity of our faith is often revealed when you and I go through the various trials and challenges of life. You know? And I'm not just talking about a flat tire on the Eisenhower in the midst of a downpour. I'm talking about real-life crises, you know, when we have to confront death and rejection and betrayal and those sorts of things in life. How strong is your faith? How strong is your faith if you have to go through suffering or persecution? Is it going to be shown to be genuine? I'm not a prophet, but as I said earlier, my sense is you and I are heading into a period of history when standing up for Christ, being a testimony for Jesus being able to live out a life that's pleasing to Christ, it's not going to be all that popular. Our secularized culture by the day is becoming more and more hostile to people of faith. And what's ironic to me is 2,000 years ago, the Christians were labeled haters of mankind. And today, 2,000 years later, you read about how people portray the church and people portray Christians. They're a bunch of hating, bigoted, you know, Racists were haters of mankind. Nothing's changed. Nothing is new under the sun. So as people of faith, we had better take the necessary steps to prepare ourselves because I think it's going to be difficult to live out our lives in an honorable way to God. Let's close with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word. Thank you for the encouragement of uh, the words of Peter, in being able to live out our faith in a way that can exemplify the life that Jesus has given us. I pray for each person here, if there's be someone here today that's never made the decision to trust in the Lord Jesus, I pray that today would be the day they would look to the Lord Jesus and, and ask for his forgiveness and the life that he offers. I pray for those that have a challenge in their families, maybe at work, and they have a tough time sometimes being a testimony for the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would encourage them today. May they live out their faith in a way that just brings glory and honor and praise to our Savior. And I pray that we would all be faithful in the days ahead. It's through Jesus we pray. Amen.